exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In world news today, Syria's government has agreed to accept the peace plan put forward by the United Nations and Arab League envoy Kofi Annan, according to the BBC. Mr. Annan's spokesperson said Annan considered it an important initial step to help bring an end to the violence, but added that implementation was key. However, the main opposition coalition is skeptical and has questioned whether the government will honor its pledge. Meanwhile, the UN said more than 9,000 people have been killed in the uprising. In national news, conservative justices of the U.S. Supreme Court have questioned whether the U.S. government has the power to penalize Americans who have no health insurance, according to the BBC. The weighty question of the provision at the core of President Obama's 2010 health care reform was under the microscope on day two of the hearing. The nine judges spent about two hours grilling attorneys on the hotly disputed individual mandate. A ruling on the political explosive, explosive issue is expected by late June. And you'll hear more on the health care debate uh, coming up soon in the hour. In Michigan news, Michigan State University has been named the li- uh, has been named to the list of 12 worst schools for free speech in 2012. That's according to the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. MSU is ranked number seven on the list for its ongoing prohibition on spamming, according to the Foundation's news release at the Huffington Post. The Foundation for Individual Rights in Education cites a 2008 case in which MSU student Kara Spencer was punished for emailing nearly 400 faculty members, according to MLive.com. So in the hour today, we'll be talking uh, with a speaker that will present at TEDx MSU that's happening this weekend at the Business College, and also later on the show for the Michigan Storytelling segment, we'll be featuring the MSU Slam Poetry Team. But first, we are currently in the middle of a three-day hearing at the Supreme Court over Obama's health care overhaul plan. To talk about the debate over health care, we have a panel of exer- experts from MSU. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank, Thank, you. You. Thank you. So to start off, can you go around and introduce yourselves and, and what you do here at MSU and your, your expertise? Uh, I'm Len Fleck. I'm a professor of philosophy and medical ethics in the Center for Ethics College of Human Medicine here at Michigan State University. And much of what I write about has to do with healthcare policy, health reform, the problem of healthcare cost containment, or what's sometimes called the problem of healthcare rationing. I'm Sandy Schneider. I'm a professor of political science in the Department of Political Science and also the director of the Masters of Public Policy program here at MSU. My main area of interest expertise is in health and welfare policy, and I look specifically at Medicaid and variability in, across the states and access and financing of health care for low-income families. And I'm Harry Perlstad, a professor in the Department of Sociology. I teach medical sociology and lecture on health care reform both here and, and uh, elsewhere, and I basically do evaluation research of uh, health care programs and initiatives. So this health care debate has been going on since the, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, as it's formally called, or some other people called Obamacare, and that was passed in 2010. What, what would you say the biggest challenges we are facing with this health care reform? From my point of view, 
the biggest challenge is going to have to do with controlling health care costs. Those are the most painful kinds of decisions that are going to have to be made. Uh, we have health care costs that are rising on average at about 7% per year. We're at $2.7 trillion that we're spending on health care in the United States now. And the projections are that we'll be at $4.5 trillion by the year 2019, which is only seven years from now. Uh, if we don't get a handle on that, then uh, health care reform that is expanding access is very likely to fail. I would agree with that. I think that financing is, is perhaps the number one issue. Uh, I would add to that, though, that access and ensuring that the quality of care is also maintained at the level that it's at are equally important and that the tension that we see in the health care reform debate, I think, is really precisely around those three issues, financing, access, and quality. And, and the whole debate has become very value-oriented. People are not really interested in <clears throat> reaching uh, compromises on this. Uh, different groups want to either eliminate it or expand it, and it's been, it's been totally value-oriented rather than looking for specific solutions. Mm-hmm. So this the the reason why we're at this hearing at the at the Supreme Court level is that 26 states, um, a small business group, and some individuals are suing the government or trying to sue the government on a basis that the mandate threatened the individual liberty by forcing people into the insurance market. Uh, so what do you think will happen through these hearings that are going on this week? Well, the Supreme Court basically has been holding these hearings – uh, there are, they have four issues in front of them. Yesterday they discussed whether they have to make a decision now or they could had to wait until somebody actually had to pay the taxes or pay the penalty. Uh, today they discussed uh, the individual mandate and whether uh, that is constitutional or not, whether Congress exceeded its powers under the in- Interstate Commerce Clause. And then tomorrow they'll talk about whether uh, uh, the administration can expand and raise the uh, ante on Medicaid coverage for the states. So I know yesterday they talked a lot about um, this 1867 law called the Anti-Injunction Act, which is basically a debate about if people don't have insurance, they're penalized. So they, they have to – No, no. The, the, the bill ba- – the, the thing says you cannot sue the government uh, for an injury if you haven't had an injury. No harm, no foul. Mm-hmm. And so people would not be harmed by the tax or the penalty until uh, April fifteenth, 2015 – when the law has been in effect for a year and the penalties are due. And so the the question was whether the court can make a decision now or whether they should wait until 2015 when somebody actually refuses to pay the tax. Mm-hmm. Well, wasn't the debate as, as far as if it's considered a tax or not? Yes. Mm-hmm. And it, it's very ambiguous exa- in my terms of how it was written in the law. But. That's true. And I, I think even in the testimony today by the administration's uh, chief counsel, the Solicitor General, he made a number of statements at one point where he called it a penalty and then another time he called it a tax and then he called it a tax penalty. So uh, if the administration's lawyer is confused, it's probably not a a surprise that that many other people are confused about whether this is really a tax or penalty or, or an obligation. So today the argument focused on whether Congress has the authority to require individual citizens to buy health insurance. And based on the research that you guys have done and and the type of things that you teach here at MSU, what are your thoughts on the issue of of having everyone required to have health insurance? Well, from the point of view of fairness or justice, it seems like everyone ought to be required to have health insurance. As things are now, individuals who are without health insurance, they have the right to go to an emergency room and to be treated. And uh, 
very often if they're unable to pay for the cost of the care that they receive there, then the hospital, in quotes, has to write off those costs. But they don't; they can't just write them off. Instead, they pass on those costs to the rest of us who are insured. So that's where that's a kind of unfairness. Individuals can, in effect, take advantage of the system. And to prevent that, uh, the mandate is uh, will facilitate everyone uh, paying for what they, in fact, receive from the system. Um, and I, I'm curious, how does the health care in the U.S. compare to that in other countries? Well, there's a wide variety. In England, there's a national health service where the government basically owns hospitals, employs most of the physicians, and provides services directly. Other countries like Germany or France have a combination of, of insurance that covers just about everybody between the employers and the state, uh, and, uh, but every, almost everybody has insurance. Uh, the closest one to us is probably, probably Australia, where for the last 35 years they've been going back and forth between a very uh, liberal type of health, uh, health insurance and uh, one that's more conservative. Mm-hmm. So, oh, anything else? I was just going to add, though, that I, when you compare the United States to other countries, advanced industrial countries, we do stand out as having the least amount of government intervention in the health care system compared to many other countries, be they have, with national health insurance or health service systems or combinations. Our system is very much more a private system. Mm-hmm. Now, Professor Snyder, tomorrow Congress will be debating whether the program's expansion of Medicaid unlawfully coerces states to participate. And I know that you study welfare as it relates to public assistance and public opinion. Can you tell me a little bit about your research and your thoughts on, on the Medicare debate? Right. Um, the Medicaid debate, I think, is actually in, in many ways the, the, the central component of, of the new health care law in terms of the cost that it will incur the states to the states and in terms of its ability to expand access. The individual mandate really will not expand. It it will expand access, but not nearly to the same extent as the Medicaid expansion. The reason that so many states are um, trying to get the the federal government to remove this this particular provision in the law is because Medicaid right now is the most expensive item in a state's budget, and the speculation is that even though the national government has promised in the <clears throat> excuse me in the affordability act to provide most of the financing for at least the first few years uh, it will expand access to 32 to 37 million americans and at a certain point in time that cost will start shifting to the states and when states are already strapped with education expenses with highway construction that's really the the question and the controversy about how will they be able to keep that access and at the same time provide nursing home care to to the elderly population. It, in my mind, it, of course, it's the area I study, but I think it really is one of the most important components of the law. Mm-hmm. And, and Professor Perlstadt, you've written about citizen participation in health planning. Can you tell me about those studies and, and what we can learn from them? Well, these were basically studies that came out of the 70s and 80s when there were attempts to have local communities or states develop health care plans to provide uh, access to to a lot of people. And uh, basically most of the research that I did on some of the programs uh, showed that uh, community input was very important in in gaining support for what was was happening and whether hospitals should be uh, opened or more beds added or closed. Uh, what kind of clinics there should be, and things like that. Mm-hmm. 
And, and Professor Fleck, I'm going around around the table mm-hmm. here. Um, I understand that you have an idea of rationing uh, to help with the healthcare system. Can you talk about that? Well, the, as I mentioned before, the basic problem we have to address is the problem of healthcare cost containment. And what we've seen over the past 40 years or so is this dramatic expansion of new healthcare technologies, many of which are aimed at prolonging human life in the face of impending death, and they're, they tend to be very costly. So, for example, there are between 30 and 40 new cancer drugs out there uh, that have costs between 50000 and $130,000 for an episode of care. And what you buy for that amount of money is anywhere from several extra weeks of life to several extra months of life. So as taxpayers, many folks are saying, we don't want to pay so much money for taxes, especially for the trillion dollars that we now spend on health care through the federal or state government for Medicare and Medicaid. As patients, we want everything, including those cancer drugs, near the, the very end of life. Well, we have to make up our minds and we have to talk to one another about what kinds of health care is really cost-worthy and will do enough good to justify the expense. And we have to collectively decide whether or not some of these drugs are really more expensive than the amount of good that they yield for us, for ourselves, or for our friends or neighbors or our loved ones in general. And you're talking about you're talking about money and some of your responses. And and I understand that the Congressional Budget Office estimates the health care coverage expansion will have a net cost of one point one trillion dollars from 2012 to 2021. Do you, where where does a lot of that money come from, and how are we going to be able to fund that? Well, in the original bill, half the money was to come through increased taxes, and about the other half was to come through <coughs> cost reductions in Medicare, Medicaid, and other federal programs. And so the original proposal was theoretically budget neutral. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office has redone the estimates every so often, and uh, they keep on rising, as one might expect. Mm-hmm. And, and finally, what, what, are your, what are your hopes um, for, to, to come out of these hearings from this week? Well, I would certainly hope that the law as a whole would be kept intact. Uh, and that we would see the health reform effort go forward. A lot of people have already benefited from the portions of the law that have already been enacted, and there is substantial promise uh, for uh, the other parts of the act and for the good that uh, I, I would hope that it would accomplish. I think, too, that most Americans really are in favor of the specific components of the law. It's just the overall perceptual image that's developed about uh, Obamacare and the, the negative connotations that have been attached to it. So it really would be um, important if we can get fo- push forward at least the major pieces of this law. Uh, uh, support and, and uh, uh, opposition really hasn't changed in the past two years. <laughs> and uh, of the opponents who tend to be a little bit over 50 percent, most of them are against the, the, the act. But there is about 10 or 15 percent who are against the act because they really wanted something more. They wanted a single payer mm-hmm. or they wanted something else. So there's opposition from the left as well as from the right. Uh, my view is, and I've read this uh, some some commentaries, is that this decision will mark uh, Chief Justice John Roberts' court, just like the the, the desegregation cases marked the, the Warren court. Mm-hmm. And from what I've read is that he is going to write the majority opinion. Uh, if the health care law, is, if the mandate is not upheld, it'll be probably 5-4 and Justice uh, Roberts will write it. 
if he can convince or if John, uh, Justice Kennedy and one or two others can work on some kind of compromise with the liberals, uh, other people speculate it could even be 6-3 to uphold the law in, in all or part of it. But this is going to be Judge Roberts' decision, and he's going to write it, and it's going to mark his court for history. And, and what is the timeline now for the rest of, of this, this health care overhaul? I know, you know, it's already in effect that those who are um, up to age 26 can still be on their parents' coverage. I know some parts of the law, um, they wanted to place a 10% sales tax on indoor tanning. Some of that has gone into effect. So some of the, some parts of these laws have gone into effect, but not all of it. So what what parts haven't been implemented yet, and what's the timeline for that? One of the major pieces has to do with the the state-level health insurance exchanges, Um, and those are scheduled to go into effect next year, assuming that the law is upheld. And many states have already uh, undergone the process of trying to determine how they're going to set up these exchanges. The exchanges are going to be one of the central pieces of the law in terms of its implementation because without the exchanges, there will be no place – for a consumer, for a citizen to go to find out what the various health care plans are that might be available. So th- that that's going to be, I think, one of the, the major components of it, if it's passed and implemented, that we'll see go into place next year. Well, for our listeners that are just tuning in, um, I'm talking with Professors Harry Perlstadt, Sandra Snyder, and Len Fleck, and they were in here to talk about the health care debate currently going on at the Supreme Court. We just finished our second day out of three days of hearing. So, Professors Perlstadt, Snyder, and Fleck, thanks so much for joining us tonight. You're very welcome. Thank you. Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Dell High Township here in Ingham County is trying to see how it can convert its waste into power. To talk about the proposal is Dell High Township Manager John Elsinga. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So this this idea of turning Delhi Township's waste into energy is in the form of a bond proposal that's up in May, correct? Correct. So can you tell me a little bit about this about this bond? Sure. Um, we currently at the wastewater plant, as you know, we would take in wastewater, separate the liquid, put the, put that to the Grand River, and we collect the solids. We treat the solids at a very high level, and uh, yet we have to transport the solids about ninety five percent liquid the farmers' fields at land application rates. Um, that's an excessive transportation cost. So to reduce that, we wanted to dry it. 
And how you do that is you have a dewatering system and solar uh, drying. It would be like greenhouses, and the cost of which is about a third of our current cost. And that's what's really unique about it. Our current cost to remove or dispose of solids from a waste plant are just under 100000 uh, per year. Um, the cost of dewatering it would be in the mid-30s. So there'd be significant savings that would help us to offset the cost of the bonds. Okay, And then it completes what we call our renewable portfolio. We currently um, utilize the methane produced in the solids processing to create electricity and heat. How do you, how do you get that methane okay. to be able to use it? Okay, pretend your solids are in a can or just in a silo. Uh-huh. And as it's warmed, treated, it, it changes and it releases methane, okay, as it's stabilized. Mm-hmm. So um, we capture that methane, clean it, and then we burn it into a couple of turbines to create electricity. The heat from the turbines we also use to reheat the sludge. And so then finally, so we're extracting energy in both cycles. So finally, we take the solids and dry them to around between 75 and 90% dry then basically we can use it as renewable uh, fuel for, like, the MSU power plant. So it fits their portfolio of reducing or utilizing renewable fuels in, as a coal substitute. So right. you're already doing some of this already? We are not. That's okay. the bond proposal. The, we're doing the phase one of the digesters are producing class A solids, if you will. All right? It's a treatment of the solids. All right? Kind of cooking them, if you will. Okay. All right? Um, however, uh, they, they, they remain as a liquid form, you know, about two to 5% solids, 95 to 98% water. And re- the, the final disposal we currently have available to us is strictly to a farmer's field. Okay. At agronomic rates or taking up the nutrients. Emerging concerns include what about the pharmaceuticals and stuff like that? They go on the land, they mm-hmm. go on the groundwater and stuff like that. Those are just emerging concerns. But more importantly, I think, um, more short, short term is the escalating transportation costs. All right. So you want to put gas in our cars? Yeah. With this waste? Well, maybe. Uh, no, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but I do think that burning it as a biofuel. Mm-hmm. That power plant is a very viable alternative. And they, the power plant actually has been thinking about this for some time before we did. However, we got some grant monies available that will help reduce our costs by about 53%. So this $5.5 million project um, will, will be reduced down to about $2.6 million. That makes it quite a viable project when you incorporate the concerns for cleaning up the environment, i.e. liquid sludge on farmers' fields and groundwater, and then B, um, actually creating electricity. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of completing, we're extracting all the energy we can out of the wastewater. So I understand that MSU's power plant burns about 200 tons of coal per day, and 20 tons um, of, of that energy is biomaterials. Mm-hmm. Um, and if this bond was passed, Delhi Township can sell one ton of biofuel to MSU a day. That's our current production, correct. We're just under one ton per day. One mm-hmm. ton per day, just mm-hmm. for Delhi Township. Right. So, and, and I understand that MSU Beyond Coal has been pushing a strong campaign, and they're trying to eliminate all coal here on campus. Mm-hmm. And 
and I understand in order to burn biofuel, coal also must be burned in the plant in order for that biofuel to be burned at the same time. Um, do you know much about that process to be able to explain and, and how much coal is used compared to biofuel? No, I do not. Okay. I just know that there is part of their um, – uh, biomass or renewable portfolio is to incorporate a lower BTU sludge or wood products or other type stuff with their higher BTU coal. Okay. There's just a dis- difference between the BTU values. So would you use any of these biofuels in Delhi Township or would you just sell it to MSU? We would sell it to a power plant. It doesn't have to be limited mm-hmm. to MSU. It could, be the, it could be the Board of Water and Light. It could be another one. Typically, you'd want to sell it to the closest one available to reduce our transportation costs. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is mostly through wastewater that this would be. It's exactly that's all it is. Mm-hmm. It's it's creating an asset out of a current liability in the wastewater business. Mm-hmm. And and I understand a part of this planned um, greenhouses. You're planning yeah. on putting up some greenhouses. What would the greenhouses do? Okay, we we take the sludge um, that's currently about two percent, and we would squeeze it mechanically to twenty percent, and then we place it in a greenhouse, and we allow the the solar energy to really evaporate the moisture out. And we can accomplish that between 75 to 90%. So it would literally dry it. And then there would be a mechanical uh, device in there to kind of create a homogeneous um, material, if you will, granular material, kind of like a fertilizer. Okay. that size. So why did Delhi Township want to get involved in, in this type of, of bond proposal? Um, two things. A, <clears throat> we already have a very sophisticated wastewater treatment plan. So what we do is we treat it really well, but we only have a singular disposal outlet, and that's the farmer's fields. Mm. So if you vision out 10, 20 years and you identify, will this be acceptable long-term without more restrictive regulations, the answer is typically we're, very, we're a highly regulated industry in the wastewater area as far as clean water goes. So my prediction would be that it's my prediction that the concerns of emerging chemicals, uh, pharmaceuticals, et cetera, would come into play with respect to land application. In Europe, these are some issues that are already um, manifesting themselves. So if you look at other countries and say it's a concern there, it may become a concern here. I okay. See. So what are your what are your hopes for this bond? Obviously, you, you probably want it to, to I'm pass. a real <laughs> proponent of it. I think, it. I think we currently, as I stated, we have a very sophisticated treat, wastewater treatment processes going on there, very clean water going to the Grand River. And if we can extract all the energy out of that plant via the solids renew, as a renewable fuel, I think we will have come a long way to turning a liability, wastewater, into assets. All right. Well, in the studio is John Elsinga. He is the Delhi Township Manager, and he was here to talk about a bond proposal that will be voted on in May um, for Delhi Township here in County to be able to convert its wastewater into power and sell to MSU. Um, that would be one ton per day. So, John Elsinga, thank you so much for coming in and talking about Delhi Township and your bond proposal. Thanks, Emily. You're listening to Impact Exposure.
General, we've just received word of an invasion. Speak quickly, maggot. Is it those Canadians again? I don't know, sir. We've just heard that Monday at 8 p.m. the impact will be invaded. You stupid ninny. That's the Asian invasion. It's the poppiest, catchiest, and all-around toe-tapping his music out of the Korea, Japan, and China. But, sir, I'm no good with Asian dialects. Shut up and listen to the music, private. That catchy beat knows no language barrier. Now move out, everyone. Sir, yes, sir. The Asian invasion. Monday nights from 8 till 10 on The Impact. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Thursday nights from 10 until 2 a.m. Listen to the Hours of Power, the scariest and only metal show in the mid-Michigan area. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. TEDx MSU is happening this Saturday at the Business College, and this year's theme is Global and Local. To talk about the event is TEDx MSU presenter Alex Galarza. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. So tell me about, about your presentation that you'll be doing here at, at TEDx MSU. Uh, well, my presentation's on uh, soccer as a global cultural medium. So the theme of the, of the event is supposed to be how the local and the global connect. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about just sort of the initial um, apprehension that Americans have about soccer as not being a mainstream sport. So I want to break down that barrier a little bit for the local component of the audience. And then the event's also being attended by a lot of international students. So they'll already be familiar with the importance of the politics and economics of soccer. So I want to connect those two themes. And in my talk, just sort of lay out that if soccer is this global cultural medium, how can we use it to better understand global politics, global economics, how does commercialization and professional game affect how we consume the sport, how we think about, you know, big mega events like the World Cup, et cetera, et cetera. Something that we talked about maybe two years ago when you interviewed me about uh, the 2010 World Cup in South Africa. Yes, you were on the show. For those that may not have been tuning in at that exact time, we would talk to you while you're in Argentina during the, the World Cup. Which was a blast. Yes, I, I imagine. Well, I'm curious. So we have this huge culture, you know, on football Saturdays at MSU. Everyone knows that there's a game going on. It's hard to not notice that. Um, so I'm curious, regarding how this TEDx MSU, the theme is is global and local, I'm curious, how do the politics differ in the soccer community in the U.S. versus Ar- Argentina? And could you compare those politics to to those that are that are with what we call football here in the U.S. versus football in, in, in South America. Right. So the, the politics of American football versus the politics of Argentine soccer. Um, well, they're comparable in some in some respects in the amount of revenue they generate in a commercial aspect. Um, things like television in Argentina, broadcasting of soccer, has the same type of 24-7 coverage that we see um, on, on American football in this country. They differ – completely in their historical trajectory in the development in the two countries. American football here didn't develop in a um, in a urban club setting as Argentine soccer did. So here we have a history of American football as, as a college game that then grew in popularity um, and certainly had an urban component when it became professional and in larger cities that had universities. But in Argentina primarily, it was a sport that grew out of youths in a city just getting together and trying to find some support for for the club, which eventually came to encompass lots of other athletic activities, 
um, petitioning the state for funds to build a field, to build a stadium, and then having the club really become sort of the center of urban life in general. Imagine having sort of your YMCA, uh, your your bridge club, and your fanatical following of a sports team all rolled into one club that you visit every weekend and you identify with. Um, we have very strong identifications with our college football teams um, here in this country, which parallels a lot of a lot of identifications with Argentine soccer. But whereas it might be rare to find in college football clear divisions in rivalries that are along um, class, race, political lines, they tend to be more inclusive in their identities. In Argentina, you often very have, you have very clear ethnic, um, political, um, and class identities behind clubs. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, I'm curious, when you were studying in Argentina, were you able to I, I hope you were able to with play with some of these clubs, or was it kind of observing from a distance? Uh, I didn't. I'm not good enough to play in any of the clubs, <laughs> okay. but I did. I was able to tap into some pickup um, games along the way. Most of the people that I'm actually working with in my project, be the academics or people that I'm interested in and in working with for archival or interview purposes, um, are mostly practitioners of the game a lot of the time. So that was a great way for me um, as a player to be able to put my foot in the door in a relationship especially with the academics that I'm working with. You know, they were all judging me as this Yankee coming down who doesn't know much about soccer. Mm -hmm. um, and I was able to kind of push that uh, push that away uh, from who I am by, by being able to play and connect with them uh, through language and through sport. So that was a privilege. Mm -hmm. Well, people always say, I, I've talked to some people that have either done study abroad or gone to a community that is completely unlike their own, and they say, you know, especially I've, I've talked to guys about this, and that when they play a sport with with people in this community, like when I studied abroad in Africa, this happened, or someone who said he studied abroad in China, this happened, where they would they would either play soccer or basketball or whatever sport it was that, that was available out in the community, you know, for no charge to those playing it. Um, they said that was a their one way to be able to, commit, to connect with the community was, you know, it kind of breaks down these barriers where they can just play. But it's interesting that you're saying that maybe that's not the case if you just pick up the sport where there is these class and ethnic divisions within soccer in Argentina. Well, um, yes, it, it can be the case. I mean, in the setting that I was in as a sort of outsider tourist without any strong immediate allegiances they can they can pick out from me, it was fairly easy for me to to, to jump into a, an informal pickup group. But if you were trying to participate in a more organized game that had people who played with each other for years and years, and if especially it was identified around a certain club or even a very specific site in a neighborhood, they might be a little bit more apprehensive about letting somebody in. Or if they found out that you were a fan of the other team, if you showed up, for example, at uh, primarily a, a River Plate uh, fan pickup game wearing a Boca Juniors jersey, that wouldn't go over so well, and it, it, it might be prohibitive for you to play in that game. Say the least. So you're working right now on your on your PhD. Um, what can you talk about um, the, your big project or thesis that you're working on? I'm assuming it's politics and soccer. Yeah, I mean it's it's really it's a project that takes a look at the the history of a city through its soccer clubs. So really, my project is a political, economic, cultural history of Buenos Aires in the 1950s and 60s. That that takes a look at that history through through football clubs. So, how did people use football clubs as a center for political life, as a way to think about what they envisioned an Argentine future to look like, um, how they would relate politically to one another, how a lot of these political divisions that might come out in the stands when people 
chant nasty things against each other uh, actually play out in things like street violence and real political divisions. Um, and also how soccer clubs sometimes could work the other way. Some of the only legislation that you can see, um, say, the equivalent of Republicans and Democrats in this country, the only time that they can really agree on something in legislation is if they happen to support the same club. So I look at you know, a, a big, massive stadium construction that was never completed. And the only place that you could see legislators from opposite sides of the aisles coming together for maybe a 20-year period is on just this piece of legislation to get this stadium built because they're all Boca Junior fans. So I've heard through the grapevine that you recently were granted a Fulbright. Is that correct? That is correct. Is yes. that is that in relation to this, this um, soccer project or is that something separate? No, that's related to the project. So I've won a, a Fulbright IIE award to travel to Buenos Aires for nine months um, and undertake my, my research. So congratulations! That's, that's a dream come true. And yeah, what we're what we're talking about it's it's a dream come true because I I get to play as well and I get to really look at soccer not only within sort of a, a very specific historical lens, say about politics in nineteen fifties and sixties, but I also minor in anthropology, and I'm doing some ethnography, some oral history to really look at soccer as a complete experience in this time period and to do sort of a more holistic approach to what the significance of this sport is in this particular country. So um, I get to connect with all my interests in that and, uh, and interact with a lot of people, which is what I love to do. And what are your hopes for once you're done with, with, your, with your PhD and after you're done with the Fulbright? What do you hope to do with, with this research, or where do you hope it goes? Well, I, I got into this to teach, and I, I would like to eventually secure a, a position as a professor to, to teach about these things that I love. Um, and thankfully here at MSU, I've, I've been already able to, to incorporate this in, in some of the courses that I've been involved in, um, a survey course in the Integrative Arts and Humanities. We talk a little bit about soccer, but this summer I'm also co-instructing a course with one of my committee members, Peter Alleggi, who's a historian of South African soccer. So he was very heavily solicited in 2010 for his opinions on, on the World Cup, which yeah. was great for him. I remember hearing him at NPR one day. I was like, yes, I know that man, kind yes. of. <laughs> yeah, he was all over the place. And um, so we're developing this course um, about a global history of soccer, and it'll run in the second summer session. So people can check that out if they're interested in, in the history of soccer. Now, on a, on a, a little bit of a separate note, I – you are the co-editor of GradHacker.org, which is a separate endeavor that you're um, that you're doing. Can you tell me a little bit about this website? This is something that's that's fairly new. Yeah, in a nutshell, it's a project that was launched here at MSU out of Matrix, which is our our center for digital humanities, um, and it was uh, co-founded by a series of graduate students to be basically a web platform to connect graduate students on a variety of issues. We launched as a blog, so we were giving advice on technology, on professional development, and all sorts of other challenges that come in grad school. So um, how to be a parent and a grad student, how to maintain a healthy lifestyle as a graduate student, to things like getting through your comprehensive exams or your prelims, um, and engaging in political issues that uh, have to do with graduate school. So it's been a great success. Since we launched in the summer, we've uh, signed with Inside Higher Ed to move our blog over to, to, to that website. But we also just launched a podcast that I'm co-hosting with um, a graduate student in uh, the Education Technology PhD program. And we're just about to put out our second episode. So if you're interested in GradHacker, you can go to gradhacker.org 
to find out more about that. And it's been it's been a real trip. It's it's been very rewarding to connect with graduate students on on things that concern them. So, and, and speaking of your podcast, I was looking through that today, and the topic of your first podcast is called "Flipping the Classroom," which which interested me. Can you just give me a little insight into what that what that means? Yeah, in in brief terms, it's the idea that what you would normally do during lecture, especially, you record, you capture. And then you put on, on on demand, essentially. So instead of showing up to two days of lecture and one day of section, you can watch those lectures online and then use that time that's normally slotted for lecture to do something else, something fun and exciting. So the professor that we interviewed, Dr. Ken Frank, had used um, the time freed up by recording his lectures to uh, do labs on um, – on some of the technology that they were teaching in the course, some some software. So it frees up time to to really engage with students on a one-on-one or a group level, or as normally you'd have sort of a, a captive audience of up to 300 people and just talk at them. So it's it's about using technology to free up classroom time, hence flip that classroom time into something else. Very interesting. Well, again, for those people that may be just tuning in, I'm talking with Alex Galarza. He'll be speaking this weekend here at MSU um, as part of TEDx MSU. Now, Alex, are you? Can you talk about any of the other presenters um, that'll that'll be there this weekend, and, and or talk a little bit more on this topic of global and local? I can't tell you about any of the presenters, but I can let our, your listeners know that if they want to f- see a list of everyone who's presenting, they can go to TEDxMSU.com. And it's also a Facebook page where they can look for for who's presenting. But I know they have a very diverse um, uh, lineup for for the weekend, and they'll all be somehow connecting their their topics to the local and global. Well, again, TEDxMSU is happening this Saturday at the Business College. For more information, you can go to TEDxMSU dot right dot com, to, yeah. dot com. All right, as well as um, they they have a Facebook page as well. Again, in the studio is Alex Galarza. Thanks you so much for listening. All right. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. My, my apologies. No problem. Um, and speaking on the topic of global and local, each year MSU sends close to 3,000 students overseas. But what about the students who travel from other countries to study in the U.S.? Up next is a feature by Alex Michael that he produced last fall that explores how international students adjust to life at MSU. Traveling abroad solo in general is a feat in itself. Going out of your comfort zone and into another culture may seem like an adventure, but when you add in higher education, learning into the equation, the adventure turns into an experience of a lifetime. Nationally and locally, study abroad is becoming a common component of today's higher education experience for many students from various types of backgrounds. MSU currently has 270 programs on all continents and in more than 60 countries. Financially accessible, the opportunity to jet across the world to develop academically, professionally, and personally, the study abroad program is an experience embraced by Camille, a law major from Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia. And as we are currently coming up to the halfway point in MSU's fall semester, we catch up with Camille and see how she is enjoying her time at MSU. I love my time abroad so far. I think MSU's a great university uh, with a lot of really great people. I think I was drawn into doing a study abroad just uh, to experience new things and just to get out of Melbourne and yeah just experience new cultures and meet new people and just have an exciting year filled with new things. 
Spanning from one semester to a whole degree, studying abroad can be catered to your specific area of study with credits that can contribute to your degree. Chris Webb and Sam Seymour, who both study at the University of Lancaster, their time abroad has just begun, with both students staying over Christmas and into next semester. It's it's been a lot of fun. It's sort of different to back home. I mean, the campus is a lot bigger. There's thousands and thousands of people here. You know, you feel like a little fish in a big pond, but it's alright. It's pretty fun. MSU is an absolutely brilliant uni. Yeah, compared to back home as well. Back home is quite a small university, including the alumni. It's only about nine thousand students. Whereas here, without the uh, alumni and your know, postgrads, it's only, it's about forty thousand students. So, and obviously, like the sports as well. It's ridiculous having eighty thousand you know stadium on the actual campus is just insane. Cited by U.S. News and World Report in its best colleges of 2009 as an outstanding example of academic programs that are believed to lead to student success, Michigan State with such an outstanding reputation as scholars, athletes, scientists, artists, and leaders, it is no surprise in the strength of the study abroad program. Just last week, it was announced that MSU was actually number one in the United States um, out of all public universities for outgoing study abroad. So that means that MSU as a public university sent more students abroad than any other public university in the U.S. And this is great for MSU students. It means that there's more opportunities to go abroad. There are more places to go abroad and the possibility to bring more credits back to Michigan State to help you complete your degree and help students actually make progress towards their degree. Some some people ask, why would a study abroad student want to come to the middle of Michigan? And uh, we actually have a lot to offer at Michigan State. There's a wide range of courses exchange students can choose from. All the student activities that we have on campus, exchange students are more than welcome and encouraged to participate in. Best Carey from Michigan State University, Office of Study Abroad, has liaised with some of the most highly respected universities around the world, and also with their team down at the Office of Study Abroad, made up of peer advisors and coordinators, counsel hundreds of students per year concerning their program here at MSU, whether it will be with their study load or even with directions to the nearest grocery store. Just last week, it was announced um, in the Open Doors report that the Office of Study Abroad at Michigan State was actually the largest study abroad program in the country at a public university, so we sent more students abroad than any other public university. And also, I think there's a lot of people that are encouraging students to go to abroad. Uh, oftentimes, it's the professors that you have in class that are the ones who are encouraging you to sign up for study abroad program and encouraging you to learn about the world outside of the United States and outside of the small little bubble of MSU. Going abroad to live and study, just like any other day, on paper seems easy enough. But an underestimated condition with studying abroad is the adjusting to lifestyle of living in a new environment. Magnifying the simple move, say between schools or cities, you have to absorb and live in another culture for an extended period of time, which has been labeled a culture shock. And some have had trouble coping with it. Even though Australia and America are quite similar in terms of just being Western cultures, I think there are a lot of subtle differences that I've noticed here at, while being at state. Um, I think even just academics-wise, I think people are a lot more driven in America and a lot more competitive. Uh, they take their studies, I think, a lot more seriously than we do back home. And, yeah, it's just it's interesting that people feel, I think, a need to be quite competitive with one another, and it's it's totally normal and it's not seen in a negative light at all. I'd say drinking is probably a pretty big one for us, because like, obviously Chris and I are both overage back in the UK for... Uh 
you know, boozing and whatnot, and obviously we're allowed to go into bars and pubs and all that kind of thing. Like, but here, you know, it's it's a lot stricter as well as being underage. It's you know, it's kind of being you know kicked back into being a child again. You know, where everybody's treating you, they can't you can't be responsible and that kind of thing. So differences for me, really, I'd say um, everything really because it's just the whole different culture over here. You know, about work. Yeah, I mean, like say the food, the dress, the people, the accents as well. I mean, putting you, um, it's just you get treated differently because you're an international student. Adapting to new food and drinking habits, language barriers, and new housing. For some, these differences may seem minuscule, but as subtle as they are, they can snowball, and you might just find yourself rolling down a hill in it. Some exchange students and study abroad students at Michigan State do struggle with the cultural transition. It's a really big change a lot of times from their home institution. A lot of students deal with missing their family. Some students, um, it's the tradition in their country to live with your your parents until it's, you know, and through university until you're done with school. So sometimes that's a big transition for students going from living with a big family to living in a dorm room with a stranger. So a lot of times we see students struggling with that transition. It ends up a lot of times being a really good growing experience but it, there can be definitely some rough points. Other students just struggle with the different traditions in the classroom. At MSU, we really do have more busy work at times. Well, it can seem like busy work to other students rather than just one big final examination at the end of the semester or final project. A lot of times there's weekly or even daily quizzes and assignments that are completed for a grade. So that can be a really big change for students. Being at MSU compared to home, I'd say that, um, yeah, I do feel out of place at times, definitely, because obviously there's lots of accents around you, and uh, they're all different, and they all want to know like what your accent is, and they just, you know, it does kind of kick you to the side a little bit whenever you don't know, like, you obviously don't have people that are like you around you, so obviously, yeah, you do stick out a little bit. I mean, the, just the words we use makes us feel a little bit out of place, like, I'll try and order, you know, chips at the, uh, in the canteen, and they won't know what I mean. I suppose it does as well. It kind of makes you feel that it makes you feel homesick, especially like with social networking nowadays as well with Facebook. And you know, if you see all your friends back at home, you know, with all the photos and nights out and Facebook status and stuff like that, it does. You know, it makes you wish you were back at home at times, especially whenever you know you feel like you're sticking out like a sore thumb. Though it may not occur frequently or even at all, some might thrive in the environment, and adaption isn't necessary. But I've definitely have felt homesick at times. I think I. As much as I love it here, I think you can't help but miss people back home, miss your family and your friends. But at the end of the day, it's it's worth it to be here. And as much as I miss home, like I don't want to be home because I'm enjoying life at state too much. Though it may seem daunting, as illustrated by our exchange students in expert opinion today, studying away from home is a growing trend and is an experience. And I'm sure none of these students feel more proud to be where they are today. I feel really privileged to be here studying at State and I think I definitely made the right decision in choosing uh, Michigan State to, to come and study. Uh, I would definitely recommend studying abroad to anybody that I met and I just think it's an amazing opportunity that provides you with just an experience that it sounds cliche but once in a lifetime kind of stuff. I mean, I'm quite proud to be you know, one of the only English people here. 
like if anyone has a question about England or Britain or the UK, then always come to me. I know it's quite selfish, but beneficial to be those kind of students, you know, that stick out and you know, can represent their country at MSU and bring that back to their home country when they return. Spread the word of MSU and the Spartans. And with the injection of green and white into their bloodstream, now they can safely say they have a home away from home. This has been Brad Kinan. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You are listening to Impact Exposure here on Impact United FM. I'm your host, Emily Fox. And now for the Michigan Storytelling segment. And this week features the MSU Slam Poetry Team. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank Hello. You. <laughs> so will you go around and introduce yourselves, please? Hi, my name is Angelina Mosier, and I am the workshop coordinator for the MSU Slam Team. My name is Marianne Caddy, and I am the historian webmaster for Slam Team. And I am Danielle Lutz, the president of the MSU Slam Team. Now, you guys have an event coming up this Saturday at 9 p.m. Where is this event located? It is in the main lounge of the Union. The Union. Excellent. That's easy to locate. And this is called the Old School Voices Only Dual Poetry Slam. (laughs) Can you tell me a little bit about this event? Well, it's an annual event. It's our biggest poetry slam of the year, and we host it with UAB. So we have eight poets, and one comes out the victor, and there's some really cool prizes going out to the people who win. Excellent. So let's give our listeners a little taste of what slam poetry is. And I understand you guys are prepared with some performances or readings or whatever you guys <laughs> like to call them. What do you call them? Poems. Poems. <laughs> you have a sentence of poems. So, so let's let's start with you, Danielle. Can you can you uh, perform or read a poem for us, please? Sure. Here's one. You and I went to Russia, or at least the idea of it, in a landscape too bland to be considered much of anything. We fought against Korean myths, and she was a nine-tailed fox that wouldn't stay in a painting. I was not an old woman, but I played one under the assumption that only an ancient soul could subdue such an eloquent monster. You were not a monk, but your silence marked you as reverent. We adopted kittens in someone else's apartment. They were the size and fragility of a child born a handful of months too early. Yours was black, and mine was a color that wasn't. It was linear, in the same way that time travel is and in the way that we walk straight lines on a rounded earth. Excellent. And again, that was Danielle reading from the Slam Poetry Team. And I'm, I guess before we move on to the next slammer, um, is that what you guys call each other? Slammers? Yeah. Slammers? Or just poets. Or just poets. <laughs> I think slammer is kind of fun. It's slammers. Um, <laughs> but... How how what do you guys do during your your slam poetry meetings? What what happens? Is it is it logistics? Do you guys plan events, or do you guys teach each other how to write poems and how to present poems? Um, usually during our meetings, we'll like really try to do exercises to expand, you know, like our poetry skills. Really try to have writing prompts. Really try to, you know. Um, kind of like challenge each other where we can improve not just on the content of our poems but also on our performance um yeah we also got announcements going on like yo there's this event we need two poets um so yeah that's usually and plus we have a good time that's that's the main thing we have a good time at our at our weekly meetings and and how did you learn about slam poetry well i actually found out through a friend and i was like okay we have to join this. And she's like, yo, let's do it. Mm-hmm. And then she bailed. <laughs> <laughs> and now and then, you're stuck. Yeah. And then I just showed up awkwardly at a meeting and I fell in love with Slam Team. So 
Yeah. Great. Well, would you be willing to do a reading right now? Yeah, most definitely. You sew me together when I'm in pieces. Soy una rompecabezas, pero you still look for the missing piece. Vas. Y para coser mi corazón, que frecuentemente estalla con emoción, usas hilo. Pero hilo es delgado como la línea de entre depresión y alegría. I saw you struggling, sewing, knitting. I saw you burrow your brow, but never deeper than your smile. That smile that made me burst at the seams. And it seems you use the thread of angels as you tread between seamstress and empress. You saw me unravel. And you sought open my chest and sought to repress the most intricate, intimate spindles of my soul and rework my tapestry of identity. Sewing, spinning, weaving, knitting, patching, piecing, and lighting. Lighting the fire on that stove and lighting the fire in my belly that flames the passion in my heart. And you add the perfect ingredients to my brewing mood. When the pressure's too much and it's too hot and, and I'm gonna burn... Like aloe vera, you cool, and like chamomile, you calm, and like honey, you cure the bitter taste of life. But you never air out my dirty laundry, but you wash it with your words, clean and fresh out of the dryer, fresh out of the dryer, so warm. Wrap this baby blanket around me that's missing pink little patches where Mickey Mouse's cheeks used to be. But it's okay because it's you that's my security blanket. And when tears make me the emotional wet blanket, you wring me out. But I'm wringing my wrist because I said I never wanted to be like you. I wanted to be strong. I didn't want to cry like you. And I was going to be independent. But I was rebellious and refused to do anything. And now I want to be everything you are. Te adoro y te amo, mamá. Eres tica y eres única. Rabiosa y loca. Your heart will always be bigger than your head, and your words will always carry the power to destroy the universe or to give an angel her wings. Very beautiful. And from the, the MSU Slam Poetry team, that was Angelina Mosher? Mosher, yeah. Mosher, excellent. So we've got a few minutes left here. Marianne Caddy, would you be willing to read a poem as of well? Of course I would. <laughs> All right, this is called First Date. I don't understand how this stuff works. I don't get the, are you free Friday? Oh no, how about Tuesday afternoons? I never get brunch. I don't get how I should go about attending movies and going out to dinner. But we went out to dinner anyway. We teetered over what's your favorite. Who thinks of favorites? For all the answers I couldn't give that boy in that diner booth, I tell you now. My favorite colors are inside of a ripe mango yellow and paprika red. My favorite movie is A Party, and we've invited Obi-Wan Kenobi, John Dillinger, Aragorn, Simba, Ferris Bueller, every Shah Rukh Khan Bollywood hero, Indigo Montoya, Professor Harold Hill, and Kermit the Frog. For my last meal, the nurse's aide will bring me my nanny's fried cauliflower, my dad's bruschetta, and mint chocolate chip and mango ice cream. Put the mint scoop on the bottom, though, so that even after I'm dead, my lips will smell fresh. My favorite music? The songs my mother will sing in the kitchen and the new beats my generation slaps air molecules to. I'm both a dog and cat person. And yeah, writing is a hobby, but I tell you, it moves from my heart like a blood clot, and if I don't get it out before it hits my brain, then, well, that's not good table talk. 
My best friend is an Arab man with eyes the color of fire, and I thank him every time the buses fail to hit me. And my favorite book is The Song of Songs. But let me tell you, if that's God's definition of a relationship between two people, then that's what I'm gunning for. But I probably not shouldn't tell you that on the first date, because the whole point of the thing is not to arouse love until it so desires. <laughs> and, that was, <laughs> and that was Marianne Caddy as part of the MSU Slam Poetry Team. The MSU Slam Poetry Team is hosting an event uh, called the Old School Voices Only Dual Poetry Slam, and that is this th- Saturday at 9 p.m. at the Union. Union. MSU Slam members, thank you so much for joining us, me, joining me tonight for the Michigan Storytelling segment. Thank you for, for having, having us. <laughs> Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.